This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello and welcome to the podcast that takes fabulous people for a fabulous meal and invites you to listen into the fabulous chat. My guest this time has had an enormously varied and long career from starring roles in sitcoms like The Rag Trade through directing at the Royal Shakespeare Company to award-nominated roles on Broadway, in the West End and on film. She won an Olivier Award for her performance in Cabaret, was nominated at the same awards five other times for her work in shows including Annie, Sweeney Todd and Sister Act and has written a bunch of books including Ramblings of an actress, the two of us, and now old rage. It's the wonderfully outspoken and ever charming Sheila Hancock. I'd never seen these shows with these people showing their penises. I couldn't believe it. I was sort of saying, this is really on television. It was a funny, and he was the same, and he loved it, you see. He thought, oh, it's lovely, it's wonderful. How exciting. What do you think of that one, darling? <laughs> <laughs> So Sheila Hancock doesn't eat meat or fish. Uh, so I've come to Commercial Street on the edge of London's East End uh, to a restaurant called Bubbler, which I loved when I reviewed it. It's Middle Eastern inflected, but it's vegetarian, it's vegan, it's vigorous. It's all the good things starting with V. And I think we're going to have a very lovely time. Should we go inside? Oh, you're very early. I know, I know, because we didn't know how long it was going to take. Wow, what's all this stuff? Ferments and pickles. What do you mean? Uh, they're, they're, what, they're, they're pickled kiwis, they're, they're fermenting, they're... Do you eat them like that? Well, they probably come out the brine and are then sprinkled on dishes. Really? In various different ways. How extraordinary, I've never seen anything like that. It looks like bits of bodies. Yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> um, in a, a piece you wrote for Prospect magazine, oh, you, right. you write a column for Prospect. I do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you that. You know that. Um, you wrote about having a fall. Oh, yes. And I have always been fascinated by the point at which falling goes from active, exactly. falling over, to passive, a thing that happens. Firstly, what happened to you? It's an embarrassing story. Brilliant. Tell actually. it. Actually, it really is an embarrassing story. I was... Sitting on the side of my toilet with my feet in my B-day, shaving my legs, because the following day I was going to see my specialist who was going to be looking at my knees. So there Well, I that's am. very considerate of you. Was, well, just vain, really, because <laughs> it's quite attractive. And, and then I, I, I thought, oh, I'll get out now. So I stood up in the B-day, 
put one soapy foot on the ground and went on my back. So there I was, sort of half naked, lying on the floor. And I had an Apple Watch, which is supposed to tell you that, you know, you've fallen and they'll get emergency people. It didn't work. So I thought, oh, I'll press it. And then I looked and my hand was hanging. Your hand was hanging? I mean, I discovered when I did this because people were saying, oh, Sheila, you've had a fall. And I mean, I didn't. I literally fell over because I behaved like an absolute total prat, which anybody of any age could do. Do you know what I mean? But I've been fighting about it. I wrote that article and I've been fighting about it ever since, saying, do stop giving these terms that you're on the way out all the time when you pass a certain age. This is Lara who is Hello. going to be serving us today. Nice to meet you. Bye. So some pickles. Oh, there's some of the pickles. So you've got three different types of pickles here. So you've got soy pickled cucumber, let go fermented carrots with black peppercorn and chilli, wow. and then pickled celery with curry leaf and coriander seed. Oh, exciting. And then you've got a loaf of flatbread here as well. Lovely. Brilliant. Do you want to have a read? Any of that looks divine. I'll leave it to you. All right. Lara, you're on. I'm going to make, Fabulous. I'm going to make some choices. The hummus with burnt butter and pine nuts. Yep. The charred oyster mushrooms. The falafel. Definitely the confit potatoes. Yeah. And the fried aubergine is fabulous. How's that look? It sounds fabulous. Yeah. Something to drink at all? Are you drinking? Or I won't. Hibiscus and cinnamon soda. That sounds lovely, yeah. And those? And I'll have a rhubarb and rosemary soda. What a lovely place. I'm going to go back a bit first because I'm fascinated by some of the people you worked with. And anybody who's listening, listening to this who doesn't know the names I'm about to bring up, please go and look them up. So in 1966, you were an entertaining Mr. Sloan on Broadway. Who were you in it with? Well, it was Lee Montague and naughty Dudley Sutton. Why was he so naughty? Oh, he misbehaved terribly. He was on the booze at that time. He became strictly, strictly AA later and, in fact, a devoted member of AA and helped a lot of people. But at that time, he, with Joe... Joe Orton, the writer yeah, of Entertaining Mr Sloan. They would disappear. We were supposed to be rehearsing, and the director was a man called Alan Schneider, a top New York director, and said, where are they? And they would be in some dive somewhere, and they'd have to be retrieved and brought back <laughs> drooping. <laughs> did you have much interaction with Joe Orton? Oh, huge, yeah, I did. He was very cool. I mean, he was right at the height Darling, of the house. Darling, he was out of control in New York. I mean, he found clubs that they d we didn't even know existed. I mean, God knows what he got. I'm, I'm, again, I'm saying, please look Joe Orton up, a gay man, that, having, well, living, uh, living the time of his life in New York. Absolutely, absolutely outrageous. And, and, and I used to tell him off, you know, and then, funnily enough, not long before he was killed, he was in this sort of rather poxy flat. They'd put murals all over the wall, which was lovely. But I said, why don't you move? You can afford to. You've got a bit of money. For God's sake, stop living like this. So we had those sort of conversations, which I don't think many people did with Joe. I mean, we were the toast of New York, funnily enough. I mean, the review opened. I, it's etched on my soul. Uh, it was something about, throw this filth back in the Atlantic. And it was just all of the major reviews were like that. But then the Greenwich Voice, which is a kind of alternative paper. The Village Voice, Stanley Greenwich, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wrote a rave review. So then people like Tennessee Williams and all those people kept coming back to see the show over and over again. Tennessee Williams came to yeah. see Did he come back and see you? Yeah, he did. Did you meet him? Yeah, yeah, oh, was I did. Um, I, I do tend to... 
try and collect one degree of separation stories. Yeah, well... Um, so I'm sitting opposite a woman who met <laughs> Tennessee Williams. That makes me very happy indeed. But I also went to the studio while I was there, you know, the, the acting studio and saw Lee Strasberg and all that lot. So it, we were part of the alternative world out there for a bit. And then I got... I, I remember it was afterwards and I lived in a square where Vanessa lived and Vanessa Redgrave and she came up to me and said, congratulations. I said, what for? And she said, would you be nominated for a Tony? They didn't even tell me. Do you know what I mean? It was a, the show was a huge shock to New York. It really was because it is. It's about a woman who's, whose brother has an affair with a man and so does she. And, you know, it's utterly amoral in every way. But terrifically funny. I mean, I've never laughed so much at rehearsals as I did with that. And and I think Joe wanted me to look like his mum because very often it's played with a blonde wig and make her look rather floozy and sexy. Right. But the funniest thing is if you're not, if you look very respectable, which he made me have a dark brown crimpy wig, you know, that had been set nicely and all that. And then when that suddenly starts showing her knickers and <laughs> flirting with a gay guy, it really is shocking and funny, very funny. You went to, So you went to the actor's studio, Lee Strasberg's yeah. famous method. yeah. Uh, I just acting. sat and watched. I did, did, yeah, did you not participate? Oh, I couldn't have done. No, I was much too frightened. But yeah, there was a sort of balcony there so you could sit and watch. And it was it was life-changing, actually, because in those days, the method hadn't really hit us. Explain what the method is. To, well, it uh, was it's based on Stanislavski. It's a very truthful way of acting. For clarity, Marlon Brando was uh, famously one of the students. And um, Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe, whom I worship. I love Marilyn Monroe. So I've got your hibiscus and cinnamon here. Lovely. Rhubarb and rosemary here. Oh, thank lovely. You. Thank no you. Worries. They're very pretty. Aren't they? There's a little pink blush coming off yours. Nice. There's an enormous leaf, and I'm not sure how I'm going to manage my way. I'm just going to stuff Ooh, that look. back down in there. Now, this isn't the first time we've met. I did see you play Mrs. Hannigan in Annie in 1978. Wow, wow. Okay. There was a thing called the, the United Nations Year of the Older Person, and you and I were asked to be speakers at it because I'd won an award. You're looking quite sort of... I don't remember this at all, but I don't remember anything, but what? <laughs> well, th this thing, I'd won an uh, award, a journalism award, which had the word young in the title. I was young journalist of the right. year. Um, and I think that's why they booked me. But the thing I find bizarre is that would have put me somewhere in my 20s and you would have been only just 60. And I'm just wondering whether you think, and this would have been, you know, a good time ago, as you've written a book called Old Rage, mm. do you think the point at which we're described as older has changed? No, I think that I think the time at which you feel older has changed. I mean, I didn't... I've only just felt old. Do you know what I mean? I mean, when I... Was it a Tuesday in April? Yeah, no, I don't know. It was, I just suddenly know I'm very, very old, which is why I wrote the book. But, I mean, I... Even at 80, I mean, I climbed a mountain at 83 for a film. And I, that seemed perfectly normal and all right. I mean, I had to go to the gym and do a lot of work, but I could Well, you've it. described that. The film's called Edie, and it's mm. a, about an older woman who uh, is a... She's 80. She, she's cared for this unloving husband for a long while, and he dies. And she has treasured a card from her father that he wrote years ago when she was a child because they used to go climbing together and walking together, she and her father. And it was a picture of this mountain called Sylvan. And it said, we must do this one day. 
And she thought, right. And she packed a bag and went up to Scotland and got the gear and climbed the mountain. When you were sent the script for that, did you look at that and go, that's a ludicrous idea, I'm 83? Or did you go, well, I've got a bit of a space between one TV job and another, so I might as well? No, I actually thought I wouldn't have to climb the mountain. I thought it would be done with green screens and all that sort of thing. I couldn't understand, first of all, why it was offered to me, because I'm not top of the list of film parts. I mean, I, this is an indelicate question to ask any actor. Mm. Do you think it had gone to others before you? No, I don't think so, because... Well, it may have gone to one or something, or they may have thought of one, but some of them, they couldn't have done it. It had to be a person over 80, and there aren't that many that can learn their lines and climb a mountain. So you don't think Eileen Atkins or Judy Dench was offered well, this first? Well, Eileen could probably have done it, but <laughs> Judy, I don't think... Could, but, but, but then they saw me in a, a musical, the producers were stark, and they, you're right, they probably had offered it to other people. They saw me in a musical called Grey Gardens, which I did at Southwark Playhouse, and they the next day phoned me and said, would I do it? And I said yes, and, and then they said I had to climb it, so I had a fit. So I said, well, you'll have to give me a night to think about it. You take a, a night to think about this? Yes, I, and I went to the gym, because I, I, I'd already, I already used to do gentle workouts, but I went to the head of the gym and said, do you think in three months I could climb, not a huge mountain, but a mountain? And he went a bit white, but then he consulted with somebody else, and they said yes, but you've got to come in. Every other day, you've got to rest day hard work, rest day hard work, and you must do some distance work in Richmond Common. There was a RAF bloke who made me run in mud and things like that. So I did three months of intense work, and I was very fit by the time I finished. It was fabulous. I like challenges, do you know what I mean? I, I find it very difficult to say no if it's difficult. I want to do it more if it's difficult, just to see if I can, really. In the, the way you describe it, it certainly was a bloody challenge. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. It was a, it was a combination of a nightmare. I was talking to the producer the other day. He was in Cannes, and I phoned him, or he phoned me, just to say, out of the blue, he said, I just remembered Edian just to say how much I loved working with you sort of thing. And I said, well, do you know, I honestly think it was one of the best jobs I've ever done in my life because we bonded. It was a very small unit, and they was, to begin with, they were very careful and tentative with me, but then they forgot because I could do it. So I was one of the kids, do you know what I mean? Am I right in understanding that you filmed it not by going up a bit and coming back down again each night? You No, no, you we camped, camped and all, oh, that was the worst bit, camping above the clouds in a tent that's supposed to be... Warm. fear of camping because of having to pee in the middle of the night? Well, that's what I had to do, and I, and I did actually think I'm going to die because I'd forgotten that you... I'd put all these layers on, and I, we, were, we were camped on a ledge with a drop the other side, and... Uh, so I've got your hummus here. Wow. And this is a burnt butter and pine nuts on there as well. I'm lovely. What do we eat it with? With those with, with that? the bread. What? So I'll pass you that. Right. Tear some off. I'm gonna taste it first. Mmm. Mmm. That is lovely. You've also described the moment when the finally you were helicoptered off the top at the end. Yeah. As a blessed it. relief. Well it was an achievement. Well it would they what happened was, when we reached the very top, which was staggering, I have to say, I mean, one of those amazing experiences, because you look and there's no sign of life anywhere. It's wilderness. Where, 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 where is in, the mountain? It's Scotland, the north of Scotland. They wanted to do some shots of me and the boy alone, 
and they wanted to do it from the helicopter which had arrived to pick us up. And then he took off, and of course they forgot that it blows a terrible wind, and we nearly went over the edge. I mean, honest to God, we would have negated the whole film. But it was, so that was scary. And then coming down, it was by this time dark, and the helicopter driver was very anxious, saying, we shouldn't be doing this because we're near to the mountain and it's dark and I can't see and we're going through cloud and all that. So that was really hairy. But then when we got down to the bottom and everybody was there cheering and it was lovely. When you read the persona of you on the page, and I hope you're going to take this in the, in the right way, you come across as a stubborn old back. Hmm. Because I get loads and loads of letters because I write the sort of books that seem to make people write to me. And so many old people give up and be old. Do you know what I mean? And particularly if they're widowed or they're a widower and, and they're on their own and they're really sad and have been for years. And that's why they're writing to me because all the people near them don't want to hear it anymore. You know, they, people say, are you all right? And you're expected to say, yes, I am all right, 15 years later. But you're not actually very You're never often. all right. Never quite all right. Um, and some are really badly not all right. And I always write back and say, look, come on, pull yourself together. There's plenty you can do. Um, even if you just sit on a bench and talk to the person that comes and sit next to you, or ask if the local school wants anybody to go and read stories or something, just to... So, to, Edie was very... And, and all the Q&As afterwards were marvellous because a lot of people stood up and said, I've made up my mind, I'm going to do that. Or I go and climb my own personal uh, mountain. Exactly. You've almost become a sort of spokesperson for older people. Have I? I think you have. No, I think I think old people sometimes think, oh, shut up. You know what I mean? <laughs> I wish you'd stop going on. I wish you'd be nice. So. Oh, more food has arrived. Wow. So I have your aubergine here with zook and a date syrup. Wow. And then I've got your charred oyster mushroom skewers here as well. Good Lord. How exciting. So that's the mushroom skewers. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh, they look gorgeous. I'm going to taste it. Oh, that is to die for. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. There's a campaigning element in you. Yeah. Um, and you, you indicate in Old Rage, which is a great name for a book, <laughs> that you sat down to write a sort of diary and it became something else. Bloomsbury asked me to write another book because mine usually done quite well. And 
I see. Oh, indeed, you've had a couple of bestsellers. So yeah. let's, and one of them won the Book of the Year in the National Book Award. Yeah. So let's not understate it. And so I thought, well, I, there is something to be said about getting old and your attitude to life and all that. At that time, it was fairly benign, my, my attitude to life. I thought I was becoming quite nicely old. And then Brexit happened, and I was out of my mind, angry and upset about it. It was against everything I believe in. Do you think that was formed by your experiences of the Second World War? Yeah, definitely was. And it made me so angry, and I went on telly the night before, and I didn't know what I was going to say. What had you been asked on to do? Well, it was, a, it was a debate. Everybody kept getting up and talking about how we were going to be financially better off if we, we could make our own laws and bullshit, bullshit. And I just suddenly found myself saying, look, during the war, I, I was bombed on and my friends were killed and I hated the Germans. And my, my first husband was air crew during the war and he bombed the Germans and they hated us. And then we dropped two atom bombs. People forget that. We dropped two atom bombs on Japan. They hated us. And there was hatred everywhere. And then suddenly, backed by Churchill, there was this idea of a united Europe, which to me seemed a start. You know, a united world will be better and it's something we've got to come to or we can't solve any of the problems that we've got. And I was so thrilled. And we needed them at that time. We were the sick man of Europe. We were, we were really glad to join a very thriving Europe. And they got us out of the shit. But it, it, it just seemed so shocking. And it still does, to be honest. You suggested that you felt the tone you gave wasn't necessarily right during that debate. It was right in as much as there was an indicator at the back and they had a thing to press as they listened to people speaking and the, and the, and the thing went to Romaine or, yeah. you know. And when I spoke, it went completely round to Romaine. So everybody came up to me and including Delia Smith came up to me afterwards and said, well done, fantastic. And then there was a um, David Cameron sent out a message on Twitter <laughs> saying, before you vote, watch this clip of Sheila Hancock. And you think, why didn't they all talk about this? I never heard any discussion of the kind of basic ethical reason for us being together. It was so silly, as politics generally is now. Look at what's happening today. And then I came up with the idea, I, have, I do keep a basic diary, not, not a detailed diary. And I thought, well, just say as it happened. More things are coming in. Oh, wow. So here I have your potato latkes with the garlic tum and a little chili. Mm. And then I've got your falafel with tahini and amber. This is lovely. The roasted aubergine. Mm. It's almost caramelised, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. What's the stuff on top? Zug and date syrup. Lovely. So it's a sort of spice mix and it is fantastic. How clever. It has to be said, in the book, you do say that you are planning to destroy all your diaries because you don't want your daughters to read them and what you've said about them. Yeah. Do you know how you're going to do this? I just burned them. I, you know, I had a bonfire in the field and tore them up and it tore the insides out. I tried, when I tried to do it with John, when I was leaving him on the, one of the many occasions when I did, and I tried to throw them in the log fire, and they just fizzled. 
So you attempted you attempted to burn your diaries when leaving John Thor. Your, yes, it was one of those. I'm gonna. My life with you is over, and I'm starting afresh. Well, I'm having a proper life. So it was all that. Was it quite purging? I do often advise people if you've got something horrible on your mind, to write it out, and then if necessary, burn it. And that can be very helpful. I think it's quite good to just write it down. And very often, then you think, oh, this is silly. This is daft. Can I tell you? I'm going to point at the Lutkers. Oh right. Because they are fantastic. Can you They're, dip them in that. You can dip them in that. They're uh, comfy potatoes, mm. um, and they are absolutely extraordinary. Lovely. One of the relationships which slightly surprised me is your big friends with Giles Brandreth. You've mm. done Gogglebox with him um, and Great Canal Journeys on Channel Four. Still available on all four. Oh. Good. I think you took over from Prunella Scales and Timothy West, we didn't did, you? On that? Yeah, we did. Um, Giles was, I mean, he's literally a Conservative. He was uh, an MP, a minister. He was he first was Secretary of the Treasury. He was, he was a whip and all of those things. Were you surprised when you met him that Yes, I was. I was. How did you, how, did, how, how was it put together? We used to meet on Just a Minute occasionally, a radio show. And we always sort of had fun on the show. Which you've done since 1967? Uh, since the beginning, yeah. I was on the first show. What, well, literally the first show? Years, yeah, yeah. Wow. So the fans tell me that. I didn't even realise it, but there, apparently I was. So just a minute. Look, with, and Nicholas Parsons was the presenter yeah, in yeah. 1967. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He and I were the only survivors from the early team like that. And I always found him amusing. He's got, a, he's got an answer to everything, Giles. He is incredibly knowledgeable, and I do love that. I love yes. wise people. I love clever people. I love people that if I ask them, they can give me an answer. And he knows everybody, and he's deeply funny. I mean, we've laughed so much. We don't much talk about politics. Giles skirts round it. Every now and then something comes up, and, and I try to confront him, but he, but he won't have it. <laughs> no, he's, he's, he's got very... a joke. He's got a joke for it. When the I did you know about Gogglebox before you were no, invited to no. do it? I mean, somebody said, so what you do is you sit on the sofa with Giles, yeah. you watch telly and you gossip it, to each it other about all, it. But it was all these cocks. I'd never seen these shows with these people showing their penises. So it, apparently it was very funny. I mean, I never watched myself, but it did cause a bit of an uproar because my reaction... Was that Naked Attraction that you I, were... One of those shows. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. I was sort of I was saying, what is that? This is really on television. It was a funny, and he was the same, and he loved it, you see. He thought, oh, it's lovely, it's wonderful. How exciting. What do you think of that one, darling? <laughs> <laughs> it was a ludicrous situation, and we both went along with it, you know, and kind of enjoyed the fact that it was ludicrous and silly. So that was good. You, you described the, the canal, you described it as one of the most fulfilling things you've ever done. It was wonderful, it really was. Well, it was a combination of all the things I love. I'm incredibly curious, so I met things and saw things that, like, I remember going to Stoke and factories and, and then we went into a pub. There's an area near Birmingham where a lot of um, Asian people have taken over w um, white working-class pubs and turned them into a total mixture. Desi pubs. Of that. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. They are extraordinary. There's some in, in uh, West London, in Southall as well. Yeah, 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 Desi pubs. So things like that, which I wouldn't have known existed, quite honestly, and I just thought it was so good. 
And then just finding out how to make a bicycle and how to make a hat and, and all the curious people that live by canals. And curious people full stop. I loved meeting ordinary people with extraordinary lives, which everybody's life is, actually. And were you able to get uh, Giles to do all the locks? He's good at locks. He could do all the pushing and shoving and opening and locking and all that. But he couldn't drive the thing. I mean, he just always went into bridges. <laughs> he got slightly better by the end of the last series, which was a shame when they cancelled it, because he, he actually had learnt to do it, and we stopped doing it, so that's a shame. No. One of the things you talked about, you know, being a working-class kid, hmm. was there a point in your career where you thought, I've travelled some distance from where my parents were? Yes, I have. I was not cast in certain parts, like Shakespeare, sadly. You say you weren't cast in those Shakespearean roles. You did become a significant part of the RSC. I did, but that was me being pushy. Really. Yeah, well, you did it. So what, what actually happened? A friend of mine and I set up something called the Actors' Centre. And one of the people, directors who came, was a bloke called Ron Eyre, who was working at the Stratford Theatre. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go as a pupil in this one, I'll do it. He said, right, Sheila, will you learn a speech of Juliet's? And I was then about, well, late 40s. Well, slightly long in the tooth yeah, for, for yeah. Juliet. And then he asked me to go and play in a part in Winter's Tale at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Obviously, I did it quite well. You got to the Royal Shakespeare Company? Yeah, so I got to the Royal Shakespeare Company and there was this thing called the, um, the small-scale tour. And they went to schools and, and I hand-picked my company, Penny Downey, um, Roger Allen, Dandy Lewis. Lewis. I mean, they were the most amazing. You picked Daniel Day Lewis. I did. And then when I came back, I then had to make sure that my company got parts, decent parts. And the one person who wasn't offered a decent part was Dan. Daniel Day Lewis yeah. wasn't offered a decent no, part no, by the RSC. Because he was slightly maverick in it. But the boys back at base thought it was a bit odd and didn't want to cast him in their shows and things like that. So I remember saying to him, go, go, they'll be on their knees one day to get you back. And, um, of course, he did. So you saw in Daniel Day-Lewis what the top oh, boards at the RSC did not see? I think I did. I, I don't think anybody else did. But he enchanted the audiences. Would you like to have a look at desserts? I don't think I could eat anymore. Well, I'll order them. Go on, then. Partly because it's called out to lunch, and yes. lunch has to end in dessert. Yes. And you can look at them Terribly and I'll help. Good. Really I'll good. I'll these here. And can I have a coffee? I'd love yeah, a coffee. Yeah, of course. Just a black coffee, or would you like some milk? I'd like some oat milk. Yeah, perfect. Please. Great. Why don't we get a coconut malabai? Yeah. And some salted caramel truffles. Perfect. John, your, your second husband, mm. you've written... Well, two books dominated by him, because there's one which is sort of the, the shared biography, mm. and then the one about being his widow. Mm. And he looms quite large in this new book as well. Mm. Has writing about John Thor, and I'm only using his full name for mm. people listening, been a way of keeping him with you? When you are nearing the end of your life, which I inevitably am, it's inevitable that you should, he should feature in me thinking of the past, you know, as does Alec, you know, my first husband. They were part of my life. Um, so therefore he crops up, really. Does the idea of the end of life trouble you? 
It depends what day. If three o'clock in the morning, I sometimes get a bit sort of, oh dear, I'd rather this wasn't happening. You think we're scared of death unnecessarily? Oh, I think we are, yeah, I think we are. But it's scary. We don't know what's going to happen. And, and also, you know, if you're still enjoying life, it's, it's sad when you get to the stage when you know there's not much of it left and you don't want to waste it. You are enjoying life, aren't you? I am, really, yes, I am. I'm writing and doing things that I've not been able to do in my life because I've always been doing other things. But I've had a messy life, you know, I've had a messy old life. But every now and then somebody stops me and says, oh, wow, I've loved seeing you. I, I have to say that as you talk about that, thunder was actually cracking over there. Yeah. I've had a messy old life. Oh, right. The heavens blow across the top of us, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. Did you ever read much of Diane Athill's I have work? done, yes, I have done. She wrote in an immensely compelling way about being right at the end of life. Yeah, she did. Well, I hope I'm doing that. I want to do that. Is that part of the plan? To write dispatches from this point in life? Well, I, that's what I'm doing, really. I mean, in Prospect, I'm doing it. And, Prospect magazine. Yeah. And in the book, to a certain extent, I hope I'm doing that. I mean, it's sort of looking back and saying what I'm letting go of. Your new book is called Old Rage. Mm. Are you still bloody livid? If you'd interviewed me yesterday, I'd have been all right. But then I saw those pictures of Boris Johnson with the glasses. And I get r really enraged. You are Dylan Thomas's character, aren't you? The rage, rage of the dying of the light. Yeah. I am, but on the other hand, I'm also trying to see what could come out of this. Well, look, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that something good does come out of everything. Yeah. The desserts have arrived. Lovely. Have a, a salted caramel. You got your coffee. I'm um, those, yeah. All that remains for me to say is, Sheila Hancock, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. That's lovely. With a mouthful. Yeah, well, that's the way it should be. It should always mm. be with a mouthful. Delicious. It just proves how fabulous vegan food can be, doesn't it? It does yeah? indeed. Even allowing for the little outbreaks of dairy that may have happened along the way. Yeah. But we won't tell anyone. What a lovely lunch companion Sheila Hancock was. Thank you to Bubbler for a delicious feast in Spitalfields in London. Look them up at bubbler.co.uk. That's B-U-B-A-L-A.co.uk. Sheila's new book, Old Rage, is now available from all good booksellers. Um, if you love the show, do please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this with, well, frankly, everyone. And um, do dip back into our back catalogue to listen to the likes of Jess Phillips, Charles Dance, and Bernadine Evaristo, among many, many others. Others. Also, do comment. Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It does help us to keep bringing you these. Out to Lunch is a something else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged, and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording and mix engineer was Paul Brogdon. The assistant producers were Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Ream, and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time, it's Thick of It, Getting On, and After Love Actor, it's Joanna Scanlon. Because it's not just it's not just filth, is no. it? It's clever filth and interesting filth. Not all relatable, but it's <laughs> <laughs> Oh look, we've all come across a soldier <laughs> masturbating in a tree. <laughs>